This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 25th, 1956. A luxury Italian ocean liner and a Swedish ship collide. However, they work together for one of the most successful rescue operations in maritime history. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. This feels like a bit of a whoopsie. But also a little bit of a success story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not completely. Some people did Leading perish. to one million deaths. <laughs> and I that's think not that's true. fine. That's not no, true. it definitely isn't. What are ocean liners? What are ocean liners but buildings? Mm-hmm. Sideways buildings. Mm-hmm. Sideways buildings half submerged in water, making dozens and dozens of transatlantic voyages. Hmm? Thus, right. it follows that an architect with little to no shipbuilding knowledge should be given the opportunity to give boat design the good old college try. Oh, yeah. And what's the worst that could happen? They sink. They crash. Okay, well, I was gonna, I wasn't finished yet. Oh, I thought it was, you were asking. No, okay, was, go ahead. Okay, it's rhetorical. And what's the worst that could happen? And then this is when I say, I certainly don't know. I don't know what I would do if I found out, but you've told me now that they would sink. Yeah. Okay. That's the worst, I guess, that could happen. I guess that is the worst that could happen. Any other <sighs> questions? No, I am super clear now on the whole general concept. Okay. I, uh, Take back everything I just said. Mm-hmm. I'm full of hot air. Would you like to learn about the Andrea Dora? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> You're on the phone. Andrea Dora. Andrea Dora. Is that Andrea Dora? Please go and tell me about the Andrea Dora. <laughs> I'm going to go for a ride on the Andrea Dora on the ocean. Following Italy's defeat in World War II, spoilers for World War II, the country's economy struggled. They were in debt to a number of other countries for war reparations, and even worse, they had lost half their merchant fleet after converting them to warships, before subsequently losing that war. Yeah. As a means of raising the country's morale, providing jobs, and rebuilding their fleet, the Italian government subsidized the building of two large ocean liners. Okay. These ships would be sisters, one named the Cristoforo Colombo, uh, named after the famous uh, explorer, murderer, is genesis Is genesis Genesidist? Yeah, genesidist. Uh, you know him. You don't love him. Christopher Columbus. You might love him. Yeah, it's anti-Italian <laughs> discrimination is yeah, what it yeah. is. And the other, the Andrea Doria. Mm-hmm. Named after a 16th century admiral from Genoa, Italy, who we can only hope killed uh, a few less people than Christopher Columbus did. I'm pretty sure, and I might be wrong here, but if we're taking into account like assists, yeah, not just points, but assists, assists, Columbus might be responsible for the most deaths in human history by that you can trace back to one guy. Yeah, yeah, I I think we give it to him. I think it's in the hundreds of millions. It's way up there. Meanwhile, he gets he hits Cuba and he goes, "I found it, uh, de India." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look at it, is. Uh... <laughs> anyway, we frown on his actions. <laughs> <laughs> These ships were intended to be passenger vessels, primarily serving transatlantic passengers traveling from New York to Genoa, and then stopping in Cannes, Naples, and Gibraltar before returning to New York. Okay. Launched February 9th, 1950, the Andrea Doria was designed by an Italian architect named Giulio Minoletti. (laughs) 
I didn't even mean to do it in the accent, uh-huh. but I was already knowing that it was going to go wrong, so I just kind of leaned you into it. You should go back and forth from Italian to Brooklyn because it was headed to New York. So you're going to be like, oh. it's either Giulio Minaletti or Giulio Minaletti. <laughs> okay, I got it, yeah. yeah whatever Designed you want, by though. Italian architect named Giulio Minaletti, <laughs> an award-winning architect all through World War II. Um, it's a period I usually associate with buildings coming down, but hey, sure, whatever. Anyway, he continued his career into the 60s and beyond. He would often design private villas or large luxury apartment complexes. Uh, For what info is available, it would appear that these two ships were the only ones he designed. Okay. Mostly mostly just uh, mid-century housing, uh, government buildings, you know, it's a beautiful blend of form and function, uh, but not... A boat, which should be mostly function, and then you can consider form. Yes. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. The ship was 696 feet long with a width of 89 feet. Getting into the numbers for all you number heads. Mm-hmm. She had a gross, absolutely gross tonnage <laughs> of 29,100 and was outfitted with twin screw turbine engines for service speed of 23 knots and a top speed of 26 knots. Pretty fast. That's pretty dang fast. That's definitely enough to get a country's morale up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we build a boat. <laughs> what about the fast ship? What about two fast ships? They're sisters, right? When completely full, the ship could accommodate 1,241 passengers, 218 in first class, 320 in cabin class, which is second, mm-hmm. and 703 in tourist class, otherwise known as third class. Otherwise known as? Steerage? No. Irish. Oh, yeah. Although we don't know. This is Italy, so maybe not maybe, as much yeah. as a normal ship. Sicilians, maybe. Could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> the ship was broken up into separate areas and decks for each passenger class. First class was amidships on the upper deck. Second class was located behind first class on the upper decks, while third class, you know, the tourists, yep. was limited to the edges of the ship at both the bow and stern. Okay. <laughs> Each class had their own dining room, as well as their own lounges and promenades. They even assigned swimming pools to each of the classes. Each one had a pool? I guess, but I have to wonder, like, what was the third class one like? Because Greased (laughs) greased watermelons. (laughs) Greased watermelons, definitely. Yep. Yeah. um, It's packed. It's completely full. There are a lot of kids wearing white (laughs) t-shirts. Yeah. Yep. In the pool. pool. Screaming. (laughs) Yep. There are All unattended. There are 200 Bluetooth speakers all competing for the (laughs) airwaves in and around the pool. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can lock down one of the grills if you got there at 8.30 in the morning. You had to have been there so early. <laughs> you got there last. It's but like an Apple store in 2007. If you do get there around like noon, you will see two fathers getting into a fist fight because one dad left a bag of charcoal on the grill and then went to go do his thing. And the other dad is like, that doesn't, you can't do that. You can't just leave a, a thing here. And then they get into a big fight in front of their families. <laughs> They've been drinking. Both have been drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got a, Coors now makes a, a Linen Kugel style shandy. Yeah. <laughs> it's you just squeeze a lemon into, <laughs> into it. <laughs> oh my God. Um <laughs> anyway, she was built with a sorry, just thinking of a public pool now is just the funniest thing. Because there's no place quite like it. It is a special. It is a singular experience. Place, yeah. yeah. 
They spent a million dollars on artwork alone. Whoa. The cabins and public rooms, even third class, had custom furnishings and decorations. A significant portion of that cost went to the life-size statue of the ship's namesake, Admiral Doria. Okay. Which, I mean, I don't know what statue costs look like, but unless he was like a huge guy, I feel like life-size is like probably 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, five, yeah, yeah. Just can't be that big. Yeah, I mean, Max, we're looking at maybe six feet. I know, yeah. yeah. Unless he was just a tower of a man from this. And it's the 16th century, so we are not looking at six feet. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) We're looking at five, four. Small man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, hey, you know what? Maybe Doria was a big guy and incurred many costs in in statuary. Yeah. Anyway, she was built with a double hull and 11 watertight compartments. These compartments would be filled with water to help prevent the ship from sinking. She was also outfitted with an early warning radar and 16 lifeboats, more than enough for everyone aboard. Wow, that's two ships in a row. They also carry, uh, a little foreshadowing, they will find a lot of the same issues here as they did on the Lusitania. They also, not German U-boats though, they also (laughs) carried two giant motorboats capable of holding up to 70 people as well as 12 smaller rowboats. That's cool. When one thing carries a smaller version, of the, same, of the thing. same thing. Awesome. That's yeah. so yeah, sick. Yeah. And it's got its own engines too. However, despite having top of the line amenities and features, the ship had significant flaws. Probably because she was designed by a man who makes beautiful buildings but had never touched a boat before. Yeah, that's probably I mean, he may have why, been on yeah. one, but uh his 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 uh what 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 number pencil do architects use? Cuz number 2 is for schools, but they use a different they use grade. Use a different of, one? Yeah, they use a different one. You always wonder, like, what's a number one pencil? And one of those, I think, is used by architects. Oh, but you have to wonder if any. I, I would assume none of those ever penned a boat. No. In the model phases of the ship, they discovered that she was prone to listing when hit by significant force, but they proceeded to launch anyway. Great. Now yep. we are back to the hits mm-hmm. here on Ship Hits the Fan. During her maiden voyage, she was hit by a large wave off the coast of Nantucket. She listed twenty-eight degrees. Uh, To make matters worse, they discovered she was more likely to list with empty fuel tanks. And since her destination was New York, she was almost completely empty. Great. Okay. So you may be wondering, can boats just do that? Uh, No. (laughs) They can't just dramatically list. That is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. This would be cited during the investigation of the sinking as a potential contributor to the incident. However, on its first voyage, the ship was able to correct the list and make it to port. Great. Oh, they said. <laughs> oh, yeah, welcome say. to Brooklyn. It's Henry Doria. She's listening. Anyway, this was not the only problem during this maiden voyage. Uh, the Andrea Doria also had huge machinery issues. Okay. They delayed the return voyage by about two weeks before launching as if nothing was wrong. So despite this rocky start, the Andrea Doria went on to make over 50 transatlantic crossings. At the time of the wreck, she had been in service just under three years and was one of the most popular options for transatlantic travel to Italy at the time. If you want to go from Naples to Brooklyn, there's no better way. There's no way better way. There's no better Andrea way. Dora. If you want to get from Naples to Brooklyn and you want to do it as, you or know. Or Queens. Or Queens, yeah. If, yeah. You, well, if you want to get to Staten Island, though. You have to take a different ship. You have to take, you have yeah. to take the Cristoforo Colombo. Yeah. <laughs> On July 17th, 1956, she began loading her passengers for a routine trip. Normal. She was booked to about 90% capacity and took on just under 300 passengers in Genoa, Italy. The ship departed as planned at 11 a.m. on the first leg of the journey. She arrived at Cannes in the French Riviera that same afternoon where she took on another 48 passengers. Okay. 
From Cannes, she sailed southeast to Naples, where she arrived as planned the following morning. She took on a total of 744 passengers in Naples, most of them third class. Oh. So presumably the, the first and second class passengers had the awful experience of having to see these people. But once they were stowed safely below yeah. decks, they were never then it, seen then again Then they were no longer people. a threat yeah. to, first, to the first class <laughs> passengers. The Andrea Doria then proceeded on for two days, arriving in Gibraltar, where she gained another 65 passengers. Okay. Having gathered all of her reserved passengers, she proceeded out into open water, bound for New York City and her dreams. (laughs) Meanwhile, in New York City, another ocean liner, the Stockholm, had loaded up their passengers and was prepared to make their 103rd transatlantic crossing home to Gothenburg, Sweden. Gothenburg. Is it it Gothenburg? Gothen- I don't really. I can't really do this. Uh, Swedish. It's so much of it in your blood. I know. I don't know. Is it like Gothenburg? Because I feel like that's more German. Swedes are like this, are they? Yeah, not? I guess it is kind of, kind of yeah. like Gothenburg. It's a little like this. this Stockholm uh, had loaded up with their passengers and prepared to make their transatlantic crossing. Sure. Now I'm, I'm just doing uh, the Finnish prime minister from Veep, Mina. That's probably close enough. Yes, and she says <laughs> yeah. Selina. That's probably fine, yeah. That's probably Go close. with it. That's probably... Let's keep it. It's all Scandinavia, right? It's all the same, <laughs> yeah. right? Anyway, Stockholm was nowhere near the size of the Andrea Doria. She had less than half the tonnage and was about 150 feet shorter. That's 10 Priuses. In, fa- <laughs> in fact, Stockholm was known to be one of the smallest passenger liners in use in the 1950s. And she was bare bones. She That's was how they like only, to do it over there. They are uh, stripped down, sparse, kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was made of plywood, exposed mm-hmm. plywood, balsa, <laughs> and Allen wrench screws, particle board <laughs> shit, <laughs> flat pack. She was only built to accommodate 395 passengers in only two classes. Just second and third. Yeah. <laughs> it had next to, well, really, actually, they yeah, had yeah, next no, to no first right, class amenities right. outside slight differences in cabin size. That's fine. Yeah. That's, you know, it's like a spirit air where everyone is a, a detestable peasant. <laughs> you are all just animals. Yeah. You're farm animals yeah, being yeah. transported. Sometimes to New York City. Often. Reportedly, she was designed so practically because the Swedish-American line believed that their industry was about to collapse in favor of air travel. Yeah. Gotta, gotta give it to them. Yeah, I mean, I mean they're, they're definitely edging towards the right side of things. Yeah. Also, uh, once you've listened to this, I think you'll agree with me, this is the ship I would rather be on. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the Swedes were only half right. Oh. While the accessibility of air travel provided more options for traveling across the Atlantic, the American economy boomed following World War II. This was essentially the birth of the modern family vacation. People wanted to travel for leisure, and cruises became a popular way to do so. And the oceans were largely safe now from a torpedo attack. Yeah, I mean, worst comes to worst, you hit a landmine. Yeah, an old one. Oh, or sorry, an iceberg. A sea mine, not a landmine. Well, I guess the iceberg thing happened earlier, but they're out there still. There's rocks. Is the is the Titanic iceberg out there still? <laughs> Shut up. Is it? It's not, You're right? Not ser- <laughs> I mean, I, I, are you serious? I, I'm a little serious. Is it out there still? <laughs> what do you think iceberg? It's it melted. I know, I know, but it could have you drifted didn't into know. a colder you climate. You seem to have not known a colder climate than the Arctic. It started in the coldest climate. I know, but it could have gone all the way down to the next coldest climate. And not melted? The Antarctic. Okay. No, it does not exist anymore. It's a huge mass. You however, know how, like, you wonder however, how does an ice sculpture work? It's however, because it's so much ice. 
There is a photo of it. There is? Yeah. I'll show you after. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, Patrick keeps it under a log in the woods behind his parents' house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yo, guys, do you want to yeah, come over and look at the ice? iceberg from the Titanic? <laughs> I really was. It sounded like something that I would have read on crack.com 12 years ago. Yeah. That the iceberg is still out still, there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Never mind then. Claiming Carry more on. ships. <laughs> <laughs> She's she is at large yet to be apprehended. It got a taste of man. <laughs> wanted more. The mammoth inside it channeled its <laughs> yeah, rage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Swedish American line pulled Stockholm out of their rotation in 1953 for improvements. They increased her capacity to 548 by building on an addition to her superstructure. Then they updated much of the interior from purely functional to moderately decorative. Okay. I think for Scandinavians, that's just a, a dash of yellow. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe like Some a shelf. Ling- a lingonberry. A lingonberry. Yes, One lingonberry exactly. in lingonberry. the corner. She still wasn't a luxury ocean liner, but she was a capable option for travelers. It does stress me out when you go to like a restaurant and it's just. There's not a thing on the walls. It's just like a weird. Oh, it's a bad vibe. Yeah. Paint. And so even if the food is awesome, which sometimes it is in those yeah. places, but like it's a stressful place to be like fluorescent lighting and just bare, like strangely painted walls. Yeah. There's a, there's a bagel place that I like that, you know, they've got, they, they get like 85% success rate. I would say every yeah. like one in six or seven times you get a dud. But it is, there is nothing in there. And the people that work there do not want to be there. Yeah. And on yeah, one yeah. hand, I'm like, good. I don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. But on the other, I'm like, why does this feel like a hostage situation? Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. why does it feel like people are being forced to make bagels against their will? Mm-hmm. Maybe they have Stockholm Syndrome. Oh. Okay. And that actually started because of something else. Yep. Not this. As the Swedish-American line began offering cruises near the Arctic Ocean, they also outfitted the ship with an ice-breaking bow. This would ensure that the Stockholm had the capability to withstand hitting large objects. Whether those large objects could withstand the impact is a different story altogether. Well, no, I think it's the same story. It's the story. same story. It's the same story. And, yeah. um, no. Well, that was the no. point. Yeah, yeah. It was an ice-breaking bow. Yeah. You would hope that the ice is broken yep. by the bow. Yep. As Stockholm, it should be an icebreaking stern where they just have to whip it around and back it into <laughs> back the ice. <laughs> As Stockholm made its way home on July 25th, 1956, the crew decided to take a shortcut. Yeah. Mm. The course they chose was one they had completed dozens of times before. It took the ship south of the Nantucket Shoals to avoid hazards, and while it saved a significant amount of time, it put them 20 miles off their recommended course. This put the ship directly into the path of incoming traffic from westbound ships. Ah. Yes. Much like airplanes do today with the sky, Uh ships travel established routes based on their trajectory to avoid collisions. Makes sense. Yeah. At the time, eastbound ships like Stockholm would leave New York with a slight northbound trajectory. Westbound ships like the Andrea Doria Doria, Mm -hmm. would approach New York from the south. Not only was this a violation of protocol, but it also violated a number of agreements signed by the shipping company who ran the Swedish-American line. Uh Uh-oh. They were traveling their shortcut route at approximately 18 knots and estimated their visibility to be six nautical miles under clear skies. Okay. Cool. However, the skies were not clear that day. Oh. In fact, it seems most days they were not clear. Mm-hmm. The waters surrounding Nantucket Island were notorious for fog. That night was no exception. Yeah. And so as dark began to fall and fog set in, the Andrea Doria began to take precautions. She reduced her speed to about 21.8 knots, utilizing the fog warning whistle, 
and closed the watertight doors as a precaution. This was all customary procedure for fog, but it did not account for the Stockholm. Okay. Stockholm, under these same conditions, entered the westbound corridor. The two ships noted each other on radar, but given their trajectory, the Andrea Doria misinterpreted Stockholm's course. She believed Stockholm would be moving northbound and would pass by on the starboard side. Stockholm knew this was not the case, but did not reach out to Andrea Doria via the radio. Great. Well, they probably didn't speak Italian. Wouldn't have done any good. <laughs> That's right. And the Italians probably didn't speak Swedish. No. Two ships in the night. Except this well, goes a little differently than yeah, the saying. Yeah. Stockholm corrected their course, anticipating a passing on the port side. Andrea Doria also corrected to make room for a starboard passing. Rather than passing safely side by side, like two ships in the night, and as they both intended, they were now on a direct collision course. Great. Due to the intense fog, by the time the ships made visual confirmation of each other, they were far too close to one another. The crews of both ships realized a collision was imminent and began preparations for a crash. That's gotta be a yeah, that's not a good feeling. icky feeling. <laughs> Stockholm attempted to stop by pulling hard to the right. Andrea Doria pulled hard to the left, both hoping to avoid the collision. At 11.10, the ships collided at a 90-degree angle. Oh. The Stockholm T-boned the Andrea Doria. Oh, no. Unfortunately, the Stockholm had that fancy ice-breaking bow. Yeah. The collision caused the bow of the Stockholm to penetrate 40 feet into the hull Ooh. of the Andrea Doria. This tore a large hole in the Andrea Doria's hull below the waterline. Yeah. Yeah. The hole began to fill the ship's interior with water, including five of the Andrea Doria's fuel tanks, which were empty. These mm -hmm. empty tanks took on thousands of tons of seawater. Good lord. Yikes. The ship was already prone to listing with empty tanks, but with one side filled with water and the tanks on the opposite side still empty, the ship listed dramatically. Thankfully, as part of the fog procedure, the Andrea Doria had closed off her watertight hull compartments. This allowed her to stay afloat despite an ever-worsening list. Mm -hmm. The design of the ship accounted for a list of up to 15 degrees. However, with the flooded tanks and the force of the collision, the ship was now listing past 20. Its maiden voyage had seen the ship correct a 28-degree list, but that time, there was not a giant hole in the hull. Yeah, you'd assume. You would think. They, I mean, I guess there was no note of it, but you'd think they would mention yeah. it, right? The initial impact had only penetrated one of the watertight compartments, but as the ship continued to list, more water would fill the ship's corridors. Additionally, there was a flaw in the ship's design, no, mm -hmm. allowing water to pour into the generator room, which had no watertight door. Okay. Uh, excuse me, sir, do you think we should maybe put a watertight door on the generator room? No. Uh, no. <laughs> no. You wouldn't do that to a cellar. It's not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so sleepy. This caused the ship to lose electricity. The Andrea Doria put out a distress signal asking for immediate assistance. The distress call was the first time the ships learned of each other's identity. Coast Guard stations along the coast received the transmission and mobilized. The Andrea Doria worked to try and correct the list by pumping water out of the fuel tanks, but these attempts were proving unsuccessful. Hmm. Aboard the Stockholm, her bow had been torn off the front of the ship. Whoa. <laughs> Yikes. However, despite the major damage, their watertight compartments were intact and the ship remained stable. Okay. Wow. So I guess that's what happens when your ship is built by someone who builds ships. Yeah, that's the big difference. <laughs> 30 minutes after impact, the captain called for all passengers and crew to abandon the Andrea Doria. 
They began lowering the lifeboats, but within moments they realized that the listing of the ship made it impossible to use the lifeboats on the port side of the ship. Yeah. Just like the Lusitania. The angle also complicated the launch of lifeboats on the starboard side. They could be lowered, but they would have to be lowered empty, with passengers boarding them at water level. Okay. They acted quickly to collect rope and ladders from the ship to allow passengers to evacuate into the lifeboats. Uh, you know, you've seen we've seen this in movies and stuff. There's yeah, a, yeah. there's a rope ladder going down the massive hull of a ship. I'm not making it down that. Uh, no, you are not. I'm I not. am, and I'm carrying three people on my back to safety. And one of them is me? Nope. Okay. Somebody else. <laughs> I actually don't know them. Actually, no, I do know them, but I don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the wreck was positioned in the middle of a busy shipping corridor. The Andrea Doria's distress call was first heard by the Cape Ann, a freighter for the United Fruit Company. Mm, okay. <laughs> the freighter had a small crew and minimal lifeboats, but it was soon joined by a U.S. Navy transport, the USNS Private William H. Thomas and the USS Edward H. Allen. A French ocean liner, eastbound from New York, also stopped to assist. The Ile de France was one of the largest and fastest ocean liners and had left port around the same time as the Stockholm. After receiving the distress signals, they sent a direct course for the Andrea Doria. Also, you mentioned the United Fruit Company. Yes. Check them out when you get a chance. Why Why is that? Just check them out. Check out the United Fruit Company. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm. It's a It's a kind of a crazy name to, I understand why it's there, but it's a crazy name to just drop in there and not uh, expand on. <laughs> Do your research on the United Fruit Company. Okay. T- tell me after we record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you have anything I mean, to say? This is for the audience. Do you have anything to say about the private William H. Thomas? Uh, nothing but good. I've heard nothing, nothing but good things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> by the time all of these ships arrived to assist, the Andrea Doria had only managed to launch a fraction of her lifeboats. Mm-hmm. And only about 200 crew and passengers had successfully evacuated. Despite the slow progress with the lifeboats, most passengers were still alive, just struggling to leave the ship. Yeah. The watertight compartments had allowed her to stay afloat for hours despite the drastic list. Mm-hmm. This allowed passengers the opportunity to gather at muster points even if they were unable to board the lifeboats. The French ocean liner positioned itself alongside the Andrea Doria and turned on all her lights to illuminate the evacuation route. Okay. They began shuttling lifeboats back and forth between the two ships. The Ile de France also took on lifeboats of survivors from the other Navy vessels in the area, while the Stockholm took on 545 evacuees, roughly half of which were discovered to be crew members who left the ship awesome. and passengers. Yep. Every man for himself. Mm-hmm. Hours later, 1,663 passengers and crew were rescued. Of the original 1,706 passengers and crew, Though a handful of passengers were airlifted via helicopter for medical care, only 43 were lost in the initial wreck. An additional eight passengers, some from the Stockholm, succumbed to wounds following rescue. It's believed nearly all these deaths were caused at the impact point during the collision and they died instantly. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The hole in the hole encompassed five passenger decks, destroying at least eight first-class cabins. Thankfully, some of those cabins were empty at the time, but unfortunately not all. Colonel Walter Carlin had been in his bathroom in cabin 46, brushing his teeth at the time of the collision. He survived the crash. His wife, however, did not. Mm. Brush your teeth, kids. Yeah. You might just survive a horrific collision. Also present in cabins 52 and 54 was the family of Camille Chianfara, 
a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. He and his family were killed almost instantly, with only his wife surviving the initial collision. Mm-hmm. Jesus. The circulation director of the San Francisco Chronicle was also in first class. He and his wife Frances were killed instantly as their suite was in the direct collision line with the Stockholm. However, their 13-year-old son, Peter, was asleep in his cabin further down the corridor and survived. I mean, that's just what being a kid was back then. Surviving? Uh, no, your parents getting crushed by a ship, and oh. you, but you live and then just do the rest of your life without them. It was a different time. Yeah. After everyone was evacuated, they attempted to tow the Andrea Doria to safety, but ultimately this proved impossible. After listing for 11 hours, the starboard side of the ship had dipped into the ocean, filling her three swimming pools with ocean water uh-huh. and ultimately sinking the ship. Saltwater pool. <laughs> Photographer Harry A. Trask captured this moment in photographs and ultimately won a Pulitzer for his photos of the ship sinking. Oh, cool. I've included one in the uh, script. This is, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty insane to it's look at. It's a ship sinking, certainly. Yeah, with, with the end that should not be above water, above water. <laughs> yeah, that's the bottom. That's That'll the be the bottom. We call that about. the keel. Yeah. All of the rescue ships carrying survivors made their way to New York, including the Stockholm, which made it back to New York damaged, but stable. Hey, you know. Whatever it takes. Me too, sister. During the time between the initial distress call and the ship's return to New York, ABC Radio Network was broadcasting an account of the collision. Edward P. Morgan was reporting on the story, but did not disclose on air that his own daughter was one of the passengers on the Andrea Doria. Whoa. Yeah. What he did not know is that his daughter had been asleep when the collision occurred and she was thrown from her bed. Okay. According to reports, she was thrown through her cabin window and onto the deck of the Stockholm. What? Safely. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. You know, falling from that height did leave her with some injuries. Imagine you're asleep and then bang, <laughs> you wake up on the deck of another ship. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like some injuries from falling, but nothing life threatening. So the rescuers gave her the nickname Miracle Girl. Okay, we got to have one. Right? Which she was called for the rest of her days. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, MG. The night after the survivors returned to New York, her father gave another broadcast confirming she was safe and detailing her story. Among the other survivors were actresses Ruth Roman and Betsy Drake. The latter was married to Cary Grant at the time. And these two were traveling together as as close friends or roommates even? I mean, given what we know about Cary Grant, right? About roommates? And I'm, I'm doing quote. Yeah, you're doing uh, a quote yeah. thing. Was Cary Grant gay? Uh, I don't know. Certainly seemed like it. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) The current mayor of Philadelphia, Richardson Dilworth, was also aboard the ship and was among those rescued. Okay. Uh, I've been to Dilworth Plaza. See, I was worried this was going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and put out a formal page. It's fine. It's a fine park. The next time you see something about Philadelphia, scrap that fact. (laughs) Go ahead, scrap that fact. (laughs) This is what we. This is what happens. I'm glad that that Richardson made it. And I don't know what impact he had on the city of Philadelphia, but he got a park, so it can't have been it can't have been bad. It can't have been bad. <laughs> they don't give parks to bad people. No. <laughs> or statues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a statue is a, a seal of approval from humanity. Yeah. Like a seal of approval for person. Frank Rizzo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of Philadelphia's most mayors. Okay. Bad guy. Bad guy. Yeah. Here we go. Anyway, notably absent from the survivors was a piece of irreplaceable cargo. The Ark of the Covenant. No, No, it wasn't. The Uh, cup of Christ the King (laughs) was aboard the ship. The Stockholm chose poorly. (laughs) 
No, the Andrea Doria had been carrying a Chrysler Norseman, a oh. one-of-a-kind prototype car produced for Chrysler by Ghia in Italy. And we mourn her loss to this day. Well, I mean, 1956, you have to assume this was one of the first cars. Now, I may be getting nope. my facts wrong. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, she, she went down. A Norseman struck down by the Stockholm. Yep. Poetic. Anyway, yeah, it was meant to be an attraction for the 1957 auto show circuit, but it was lost along with 50 other cars that went down with the ship. Well, once the ships returned to New York, there were months of hearings held to determine fault in the collision. Testimonies were given from each captain, their survivors, crew members, and also the shipping companies. Ultimately, a settlement was reached out of court and the hearings ended. Both shipping lines contributed to the settlement fund and each paid for their own damages. For the Stockholm, damages were estimated at $2 million, while the Andrea Doria's damages and total loss were valued at $30 million. Yeah. A congressional hearing was held where the cause of the collision was found to be fog and the Andrea Doria's known listing issue. Additionally, they cited the Andrea Doria for not following radar and radio procedures and following a long-established rule that head-to-head -head vessels both turn left to starboard. They yeah. also cited the ship's top speed, while reduced was not within the safe ranges for fog. Mm. Further, they cited Stockholm's course correction as a noted factor in the collision. There have also been suggestions that the third mate misread the radar in the moments leading up to the crash. Ultimately, neither ship accepted full responsibility for the collision. Okay. Shocker. Yeah. Following this event, radar technology was improved and additional training was required for all vessels, which is why there haven't been any wrecks after 1956. Yeah, we thank them. <laughs> the rule of always turning starboard is still utilized today primarily by military ships. This wreck led to the establishment of collision regulations, or coal reg, <laughs> a set of rules to specifically avoid these types of collisions. Yeah. The Andrea Doria lies in 160 feet of water off the coast of Nantucket, and it is a frequent dive site. Oh, cool. It's nicknamed the Mount Everest of scuba diving. Why? Uh, presumably because it's covered in trash. Oh, okay. Uh, much like the Lusitania, the depth of the wreck limits it to extremely experienced divers. Records indicate that at least 22 divers have lost their lives attempting to dive Whoa. the wreck. That's always interesting when you hear about that, because that's not uncommon, is divers perishing, like, just looking at a wreck. Yeah, yeah. It just continues to claim, like, extra victims. In 1968, a documentary crew filmed the first expedition to the wreck and produced a documentary titled, I think, Andrea Doria Minus 74? Or maybe I'm misunderstanding the title, and it's just Andrea Doria 74. No, I think you're right. I think it's Minus 74. Okay. I was right. Note that, please. Multiple salvage operations were conducted over the years until 2010 when the wreck began to deteriorate. Many of the previous access points for diving into the ship are no longer accessible, but as the ship continues to collapse, new access points open. I personally won't be entering any access points in a ship that continues to collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Probably for the best. In 2017, a new salvage expedition retrieved one of the ship's two foghorns. And in 2021, the now restored foghorn was sounded to commemorate the 65th anniversary of the sinking. Woo. The Stockholm, on the other hand, after undergoing widespread repairs, now sails as the MV Astoria, and it is the oldest ocean liner still in service. Gotta give it to the Swedes. Yeah. Yeah. So that That's is- That's crazy. That, I mean, that is wild, but also you can assume that a company that had the wherewithal to anticipate air travel's uh, impact on the, you know, cruising uh, industry and on ocean liners in general, 
They knew you, what they You would do. hope that they future-proofed in more ways than one. Yeah. And it seems like they did. Yeah. Presumably now covered in ice-breaking. Uh... Hunting down. <laughs> they've been tasked with hunting down the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. <laughs> I think which it's the... did make it to the other pole. I think it's out there. They d- did make it to the South Pole. <laughs> it was very small when it got there. Yeah. A cube, really. <laughs> <laughs> just scooped but it's up had like a, it's had over a hundred years to re to gather its strength and <laughs> it amasses to the south. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ice cubes forces. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's the Andrea Doria cool. and the Stockholm. A refreshing story of rescue. Of course, there were some lives lost, but there could have been so many more if people had not acted accordingly. Yeah. Now that restored foghorn probably sounds a little something like. Uh, they did the best like they could, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, it is not going to sound the way it's supposed to. Ships tipping over. Not a thing of the past. Oh, yeah? Not even a little. Oh. Last week at the time of recording, an absolute unit of a ship up and fell over in a Scottish dockyard. It injured at least 35 people and sent 21 to the hospital. Ooh. The 3,000-ton ship named the RV Petrel, 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 Sure. Petriel was at one time owned by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. Okay. Allen has since passed, but his love of ships should not go unmentioned. No, of course not. He is survived by his yachts, Tatouche and Octopus. Oh. <laughs> oh, they honor his memory to this day. <laughs> well, they were sold actually by his estate oh, okay. uh, managed by his sister. But they remember. They remember, yeah. But we're not talking about a 414-foot-long super yacht. The octopus, which is actually one of the largest ships in the world. Sure. <laughs> We're talking about a massive research vessel unjustifiably brought down by high winds. Yeah. It was blown over. Though the Petrel has been moored since 2020 for some sort of operational uh, challenge. I don't mm-hmm. remember. Uh, no, no, it was operational challenges. I do remember. Anyway, the ship has a notable past. Okay. You may recognize the name. Because the RV Petrel became renowned for discovering the wreck of the USS Indianapolis in what? 2017. Okay. Yeah. It's a you know sure. deep sea research vessel and yeah, yeah. it found the Indianapolis. Great. That's right. This big gal is inextricably linked with one of the most famous shipwrecks of all time, uh, in and out of wartime. Uh, and likewise, uh the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Cool. Uh, hopefully the ship and those hurt are back upright soon without any lasting damage. We send our thoughts and we prayers. We send our thoughts and prayers. Tattoosh and Octopus are trying to be there. Yeah, but, they're, you know, it's, it's, you the, know, it's the busy season. They are the sons of someone with great wealth, though, so they do. They have their own troubles. <laughs> yeah, Tattoosh's substance abuse is well documented. Yeah, yeah. And well, Octopus. I don't even know what Octopus you know, is getting up to, but I mean, it's not like, good. At best, you could call it gambling. Yeah. But it's far darker than that. Yeah. It's like Deer Hunter. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) The show is written by Paige Wesley. It's edited by Kelly Reynolds. And we have art by Stevie Jude. And we thank them all. We thank them all. We love them. (laughs) We love them. We offer our hopes and prayers. Our hearts and our souls. I do hope that the people hurt are okay. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And Patrick thinks that too. I also think that. Thanks, everybody. Well, I and I hope that your bones bleach in these sands. I do as well. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Cool. Bye.